you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. If you'll give me just a moment. Stan, I'm moving your notes. And uh, to return to something, Stan Rader, our, our uh, worship leader, did a great job this morning. Um, Stan is sometimes that mean after an Air Force Navy or an Air Force Army game, uh, particularly when Air Force wins. So, um, and I have noticed an odd number of times that he just happens to be the worship leader when one of those games is happening, him, him or his brother. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, nonetheless, I'm just glad they, they welcome civilians uh, uh, here at this church, so uh, like myself. Without further ado... Isaiah chapter 17, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks which lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean, and it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation." And have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word this morning. Let us pray. O oh God, our God, we come to you needing your word, needing your truth, needing your light so that we might see light. Father, would you give that to us? Would you help us to see our sin and see our great Savior who covers over all of our sin through faith in him? Be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Aren't you glad that we are smarter than these people from 2,700 years ago? Aren't you glad that we would never make the same mistakes as them? 
After all, we are so much more advanced, so much smarter. Our universities dwarf the knowledge that they had back then. Aren't you glad that we never put our trust in the fleeting hope of mighty nations, that we would never trust in one nation and its army and its wealth more than we trust in the mighty God? Aren't you glad that we would never forsake the God of our salvation, forsake Him for what our own hands can do or make? And aren't you glad that our wisdom never causes us to turn away from our maker, our creator? Aren't you glad? No, you're not. Because most of you have caught on. And what I've said so far is not true. I was displaying what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. The belief that old ideas are bad simply because they're old. Old equals bad. New equals good. See, we often assume that because we are more advanced today, we would never repeat the mistakes of the past. It's the assumption in every argument that talks about the right side of history. As if history is a story of unimpeded progress with no setbacks along the way. Let me tell you, history is holding on line one and she begs to differ. The truth is that we have not overcome the sin nature that plagued our ancestors. Oh, our sins may look different, but the sin itself, the sin underneath the sin, like the failure to trust God ultimately, it's still there. For example, I don't plant plants that sprout quickly, as verse 11 talks about, in order to prompt Baal, a false god, into action to make the earth fertile. Don't do that. Do you ever wear your lucky shirt when the Broncos or Bama or your favorite team plays football? What do our actions show, both then and now? I believe the true God is sovereign, but I'll just perform this little superstitious ritual anyway. Aren't you glad we're so much more advanced than the people back then? Maybe not, but aren't you glad that the God who called Israel out of their sin and selfishness still calls out to you today, still calls in spite of your 21st century sin, in spite of your timeless selfishness, See, that part is no joke. The destruction of ancient Damascus, it's a story for us. It tells us that those who rebel against God in any age will not succeed. It also tells us where to look when our empty, earthly hopes fade away. Three things today that the destruction of ancient Damascus helps us to see. The first one is this. We see the fleeting hope of mighty nations. The fleeting hope of mighty nations. Verses 1 through 6 as well as 12 through 14. Isaiah chapters 13 through 24, we're in the middle of all that. Those chapters are the oracles against foreign nations. They reminded Israel, God's people, that their enemies would rise and fall when God said so. God was sovereign over foreign nations, most of whom were mightier than Israel at this time. But there are other reasons for those oracles too. Let's, let's look at the familiar and the unique in this passage. Verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. Damascus, the capital of Syria, it's going to be destroyed. Another nation that worshipped other gods who used Asherim poles, verse 8, which were centers of 
cult prostitution, all of this turn people away from the true God in whom joy and life and security and purpose could be found. So God was going to destroy them. We've, we've heard that before, right? Well, verse 2, the cities of Aror are deserted. They're, they will be for flocks which lie down and none will make them afraid. Which city? The cities of Aror, which were probably not in Syria. Ooh, what's going on here? Verse 3, the fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. First off, the end of verse 3 is probably ironic. Syria's glory will be like Israel's glory, fallen on hard times, both of them. But Ephraim uh, is definitely not in Syria. Ephraim is a prominent tribe of Israel, synonymous with the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim is not in Syria, but at one time Ephraim was, quote, in league with Syria, Isaiah 7-2. They made an alliance with Syria. God's people joined themselves to not God's people for political convenience. Syria and Ephraim, they joined to attack Assyria, the awesome power in the region, all this happened sometime before 732 B.C. It's all recorded in Isaiah 7 through 10. You see Isaiah, if you've been paying attention week by week, Isaiah's kind of turned back the clock. But he's not really interested in history at the moment. He's interested in the theological motivations behind the history. Let me say that another way. Isaiah is using history to teach us about ourselves, about our true God, and about the false lesser gods that we sometimes trust. When history gets scary, who do you trust? Ephraim, northern Israel, they trusted Syria, a mighty nation, an ungodly nation. It seems to be something like this. If we form an alliance with Syria, then things will be okay. If this happens, then I will be okay. How would you fill in that blank? Say it another way. Everything will be fine when, if... How do you finish that sentence? When this happens, if I get this, when they stop being a jerk to me. Oh, come on, some of you, I was expecting you to laugh at that one. Um, <clears throat> but however you fill in the blank, this will make everything okay. That is your idol. That is your other God that you are trusting before or more than the true God. That is your mighty nation who will come and save the day. Israel trusted Syria. Some of us can't find Syria on the map. But we're no different than Israel. We too trust in powers that are fleeting, empty. Can you find Syria on the map? No? Well, well, if you could, then you'd see something interesting. In Isaiah 14, God says Philistia will fall. That's to the west of Israel. Mountains are always west in Colorado Springs. In Isaiah 15 and 16, God says Moab will fall to the east of Israel. Here in Isaiah 17, God says Damascus, Syria, Ephraim, they will fall in the north and then in Isaiah 18 through 20, what we'll read in a few weeks, it talks about Egypt and Cush to the south. 
One commentator draws this conclusion. Wherever Judah looks, to the west, east, north, or south, she sees only nations whose glory is fleeting and whose fate is sealed. There is nowhere she can look for her own security but to the Lord. Verses 4 through 6 drive this point home. They're going to be brought low, northern Israel and her ungodly neighbors. Famine is going to be part of their life. And then if we can skip ahead to verses 12 to 14, you see another mighty nation fall. Remember the context again, Syria and Damascus, her capital, as well as Ephraim, also known as northern Israel, Syria's friend of convenience. They're going to share the same fate. Verses 12 through 14 say an enemy, probably Assyria, will come like thunder, verse 12, like the roaring of many waters, verse 13. And then in the middle of verse 13, it says, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff or like a tumbleweed on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. And then verse 14 restates, summarizes it. At evening time, behold terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Isaiah says God can strike down the ungodly nations who are harassing God's people in an instant. So God's people should stop trusting in mighty nations or anything else to save them. The destruction of ancient Damascus, it shows us the fleeting hope of mighty nations, or anything else besides the true and living God. It also shows us this, secondly, the forgotten God of our salvation. The forgotten God of our salvation in verses 9 through 11. Israel trusted Syria, a mighty nation. Uh, Northern Israel especially, but southern Israel, also known as Judah, wasn't much better. And are we much better? Do we ever trust in mighty nations instead of God? Do we ever worship idols or false gods? We may not have carved images made out of wood and stone, but we too trust in something besides God to deliver us, to give us the joy, safety, meaning that only God can give. And those other gods will not deliver because they're powerless, lifeless. They are things that our own hands have made. They won't deliver. They'll leave us empty, just like this alliance, Syria and Ephraim, it left them empty. Verses 9 through 11, Isaiah is explaining why northern Israel will find herself in such an empty place. What does he say? Verse 9, in that day, excuse me, in that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. There are three in that days in this passage. This one is similar to verse four. In that day, Jacob's glory will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. It's an image of famine, malnourishment, poverty, material poverty. And then verse nine shows you military poverty. No more strong cities to defend them. No more forests, just desolation. And then comes the why in verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Sometimes, 
pragmatism and convenience, be it militarily, politically, otherwise, sometimes that is a refusal to trust God, pragmatism and convenience. For example, God cannot provide for me unless I skirt this law, which is really inconvenient for me. God cannot protect me unless we compromise our principles, we unite with some other group. What are we doing if we do that? The same thing Israel did when she hitched her wagon to Syria, forgetting the God of our salvation, the rock of our refuge. One author says, salvation is not an occasional act of God. It's an attribute. Who he is. He says it this way. He is a saving God. Indeed, your saving God. Israel could never say, ah, but he will not save now. For he is the ever saving God. Nor could they say, ah, but he will not save us now. For he is your saving God. Have you forgotten your God? Have you failed to keep your mind fixed on him in all that you do? Have you forgotten God's greatest hits? The moments when God lifted you up out of the muck and mire of your life, whether you caused it or someone else caused it. The moments when he arranged things just so, just in the nick of time, at just the right time. Like when you listened to your wife, bought the new car, replaced the one with the busted cruise control in the small trunk right before car prices skyrocketed, so that a few months later, when someone rear-ended your wife minutes before you left for vacation, you would still have a car that was big enough to hold all your stuff for the 3,000-mile, two-week road trip. It may have happened to a friend of mine. Now, you have your own versions. Maybe they're more dramatic. Either way, shouldn't all of those stories teach us this? If God provided then, then he can still provide now. Even when circumstances look bleak, he proved that he could be trusted then, so he can also be trusted now. Israel forgot that. They forgot that God was their ever-saving God, their fortress, their refuge, their ever-present help in time of trouble. Instead, they trusted a mighty nation to deliver them. And they also trusted that nation's gods. Of course, Israel trusted every foreign god at one time or another. And most foreign gods were and are pretty similar. Alec Moitier says this, Human initiative seeking to provoke divine response lies at the heart of non-biblical religion and of every perversion of biblical religion. What's he saying? Almost every false religion boils down to this. God helps those who helps themselves. That's not in the Bible, by the way. God helps those who help themselves. Human initiative or action seeking to provoke divine response. Something like this. God, I did X. So you have to bless me now. Dear Mr. Idol, I did this, so you have to bless me now. Now verses 10 and 11 are a bit obscure, hard to understand, but notice this phrase in verse 11. Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them. This is sort of a 8th century BC alarm bell for idolatry. They were planting these special plants that sprouted quickly, 
so that their fertility gods would see this and imitate this. They were trying to provoke a response from the fertility gods who, amongst other things, made the earth fertile so that the crops grew, so that they had money or its rough equivalent. Now, Isaiah's point here is that all of this is stupid, pointless, and faithless. Pointless because verse 11 says their harvest will ultimately flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain when Assyria invades. It's also faithless. Who do their actions show they are trusting? Not God. It shows that they've forgotten the God of their salvation. So they sought out these other weak and worthless gods to save them instead. Ah, Matt. But I am not planting weird plants in the hopes that I can make things sprout up. I'm not doing that. I'm not trusting in a fertility God. Good. Don't start. But the thing about serving other gods is that sometimes you get lost. So much so that you can't find your way back home. You end up in an alley with other strange gods and other strange practices. Verse 8 mentions other idols that Israel was serving, like the Asherim, the Asherah poles, <clears throat> centers of cult prostitution. Now, I could give you the rationale behind the cult prostitution, but here's the bottom line. They made sex central to their religious experience. That's horrible. We would never do that, right? No, instead, 21st century America has made sex central to life. Supposedly, your very identity and personhood are defined by your sexual choices. And before we merely scoff and merely change the subject, let's admit that sexual desire, sexual pleasure are some of the strongest emotions and pleasures that can be experienced on earth. So we at least understand why people would overemphasize it. And all that is why I heard this sermon outline once upon a time about 15 years ago. Sex is a good thing that we've made a bad thing but it's not the best thing. Sexual pleasure within marriage between one man and one woman is a good thing. Our culture is obsessed with sex. So what do we do as counter-cultural Christians, as biblical Christians? We must not be so afraid of sexual immorality or perversion, a distortion of God's good gift, that we forget to mention that God created sex and that it is a good thing when it is enjoyed within its proper boundaries. Fire in a fireplace in a fire pit is a good thing. Fire outside of that fire pit in dry grass in a forest. Where does it lead? Where does it stop? Sex is a good thing that we've made a bad thing, but it's not the best thing. This is your semi-annual reminder that I don't necessarily enjoy preaching about sex. But our culture is obsessed with it, so our kids can either learn about it from us or they can learn about it from others. But the bottom line is, when we seek security in mighty nations or something else, when we seek prosperity through false religion or superstition, when we seek pleasure in sex outside of marriage or somewhere else, when we seek any of these things, when we seek ultimate fulfillment in something besides God, then we've forgotten the God of our salvation, the rock of our refuge, and we will feel empty. 
when the fleeting hopes of other nations and other gods disappoint us. The destruction of ancient Damascus, it shows us the fleeting hopes of mighty nations. It shows us the forgotten God of our salvation. And it also shows us, thirdly and finally, the forgiving God of our creation. The forgiving God of our creation. Verses 4 through 8. Syria and Israel, God's people, are both empty because they both trusted the wrong thing. Military might, a host of idols, they forgot God. So verse 4 and 5 says this, And in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reapers gather standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. The reaper will come for the first harvest. Then the gleaners will come gleaning. We talked about this when we looked at the book of Ruth. Gleaners were like the people who came to take the table scraps. The wheat that the reaper missed on his first pass. And whatever is left after that, after the gleaner, after the second harvest, that's what Israel is going to be like. Like when two or three berries, maybe four or five, are left on the branches, according to verse 6. It won't be a happy day. No parties. It'll be a day of emptiness. And then God's real work will begin. Isn't that how God often works? Then God's power will be made perfect in man's weakness. Verse 7, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. Get rid of the idols, man will say, because they don't work. They just distract us from what we really need. They just mislead us. They turn us away from the one who provides true pleasure, solid joys and lasting treasures or pleasures. None but Zion's children know. Another hymn says, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. And God will not turn us away in that day. You see, as you read all this, don't you get the sense that this is what God has wanted all along? That the God of our salvation has wanted us to remember him, wanted us to turn to him, that he stood watching like the father of the prodigal son of whom it said, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The God of our salvation knows that idols our own hands make will never make us happy because our own hands have made them are lifeless things. What we need is our maker, our creator, the one who created us, the one who called us out of the darkness and into his glorious light. What we need is to return to our creator and our maker. It's what we need, and it's what our maker wants. Isaiah 30 says he longs to be gracious to us, no matter where we've been, no matter how badly we've failed. And when we are brought low, when we see the emptiness of this world's promises, then we are ready. We're ready to return 
ready to turn away from every idol, every human achievement, every improvement upon God's promises. As I said a moment ago, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Those words are about a thousand years old from a hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux. But they could easily be the biography of someone even older. Thinking of a restless young man from northern Africa who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries. His mother was a Christian, but her son ran from God, ran from his ways. He sampled all the pleasures of the world, sexual and otherwise. And as God began to call him back, he would pray, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Let me enjoy my pursuit of godless pleasure a little bit longer. But he was still restless. So finally, the prayers of his mother and a series of random events brought him back to his maker. And at that point, he prayed a different prayer. You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That man, of course, is now known as Augustine of Hippo or Saint Augustine. He was no saint early in his life, but he came to know that his God was his creator, that his God was the forgiving God, that his God was the saving God, saving us from enemies, from circumstances, from sin and selfishness and rebellion, from self-destroying stupidity, from pointless idol worship, from all the things that are empty, from all the things that leave us restless searching for rest. We are not that different from Augustine. We are not that different from Israel or Damascus. But praise the Lord, our God is not different at all. Augustine's God is our God if we trust in him. Israel's God is our God, the God of our salvation, the forgiving God of our creation, the one who formed us and made us the one who ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Our God, our maker, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you need this God, look to him now. Look to your maker. And if you don't know where to look, come talk to me. I'm just another restless heart who would love to introduce you to the one who gave me rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that no matter where we are, no matter where we've been, you can still call out to us. You can still make your voice heard. You can still reach us, grab us, bring us to yourself. And that is what we need most. Whether we're an inch away or miles away, whether we've never come to you at all, or whether we've come and run away a thousand times. If you've drawn us a thousand times, Lord, draw us once again. God be with us. Help us to know and believe all your good and precious promises, which find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. His name we pray. Amen.